0: And now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. So we are coming into another week of our sex and intimacy month. And today I am bringing you um, one of my favorite. Favorite people to talk about sex with (laughs) and intimacy. Um, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Um, You may follow her on Instagram. If you don't, I think you definitely should. And I also think you should read her book, which is amazing, called Taking Sexy Back How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. Hello. Dr. Alexandra solomon uh, is she's amazing. she's a she's a clinical assistant professor at Northwestern University and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. And not only is she an amazing writer and psychologist, and she writes articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and family, um, but also, she literally teaches a college course on how to be in relationship. Like, you know how we always say, like, they don't teach this shit in school. Well, guess what? They do. <laughs> but you have to go to Northwestern to take it. I, that's like one of my favorite things about her. But I, but I love her book. I, I strongly, highly cannot recommend highly enough um, that everybody reads. Alexandra's book. Um, it just came out recently. Um, again, it's called Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationship You Want. So I'm just going to actually let this one go. I'm going I'm not going to talk anymore because I think my conversation with Alexandra will speak for itself. So enjoy. All right, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, thank you so much for being here and talking about taking your sexy
1: back. <laughs> it's so good to be with you, Kate. I... I'm so ready for this conversation.
0: Oh my god, I am too. And I think and I think so many women are and there there's there's so many aspects to this that I want to dive into. But tell me sort of what was so you wrote this book, which is amazing. What was it that sort of prompted you to write this, to
1: talk about these this sexuality in these terms? Right? It was I mean, I think it was, a, it was a number of factors coming together, right? So I'm two decades into my career as a couples therapist and a relationship educator. I'm two decades into being a wife. And I, was, and I really enjoy translating what academics are working on, what educators are working on, and translating it to the general public. And then this book, in some, in some ways, this book is a circling back to the things I was really passionate about. As a younger woman in college and in grad school, and the intersection of gender and power and sex and relationship, it just was—it was a fascinating book to write and to be part of. But it was—I was called to do it, and I started working on it right as the uh, Me Too movement was taking off. Right, so that's—that was not a new term, but Alyssa Milano certainly made it go viral. Summer of fall of twenty-seventeen, really, mm-hmm. and so it—it it was. I think it was the right moment for a book like this where we're talking so much about the pain and the abuses that happen around sex that I also wanted to make sure we were talking about the pleasures of sex and the reclamation and us taking back something that always should have been ours the whole time, which is our our relationship to our own erotic self. And so that's really where the book starts. It is couples therapy for the reader um, between the reader and her erotic self like who are we with each other and that that has to happen before there's before anything else really
0: I love that. I love that. Um, when I talk to my clients about about sexuality like particularly women who have gotten divorced and then Had a relationship outside of their marriage, you know Like the new the first one that's sort of sexually awakening, right? It's a very common theme, right? We all have that, right? and they have this sort of sexual reawakening with a partner with someone new, and then that relationship doesn't last and they're they're really upset and scared about losing the sex losing the sexuality that they discovered with their partner and you know I always say to them that that's yours that what you found with this other partner and what you glimpsed with that other partner is an aspect of yourself that if you actually get to that if you dig into and you start to own it and claim it as your own, then it's portable and that goes with you wherever you go. Like it doesn't belong to him. And one of the things that you talk about a lot in your TED talk and in the book is about agency and women's agency over their own sexuality. Right. And so often I think we attach it to another person. But what you talk about first is actually attaching
1: it to ourselves. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. It's the inevitable cascade of events that happens when we launch girls into womanhood with inadequate sex education, right? Without so if, so if we go into adulthood, we go into a marriage having never had a sense that our sexuality is our own, because how could we? Because 10,000 years of patriarchy have given us the message that, that sex is a duty. hmm Sex is something that 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 is on the list of shoulds and needs to and has to around what it means to be a female partner, especially a female partner to a male partner. And so if if that becomes our first experience of our sexual self, and then then that can then it oftentimes is a an aspect of the erosion of the marriage. And right. So we're not we're not healed within that first marriage potentially. And in fact, that first marriage then maybe reinforces, perpetuates, there's disconnect, there's disengagement, there's resentment, da, 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 da. And so then I can, I, I know what you're saying, that then post-divorce, it feels like, wow, this man awoke this in me. And mm-hmm. it's again, which of course that would be the thought because it is this idea that men give us orgasms, right? Men make us feel good. So it's, so there's a, ri- and I love that then she's there with you to rewrite that story and can yeah. have reflected back to her, actually, this was, you entered into this experience differently, right? You somehow yeah, off the layers of trauma and pain and disconnect that were from your marriage and you are discovering this part of you. And so I love, I love helping women connect with their sexy, no matter where they are. I would love for us to raise the next generation of girls to so not have to reconnect, but to have that from the get-go, Absolutely. right? Absolutely oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing?
0: Mm-hmm. That would just be incredible. Let's talk about let's talk about that. Like how do we do that? Like so we talk about you talk about sex education and how it's not good right? And I, I love that you talk in your TED talk about um, being a child of the 80s and getting under your covers on Sunday nights and listening to Dr. Ruth because hello, me too <laughs> Oh, hell yeah. I <laughs> love it. For, for everyone else who's much younger <laughs> than Alexandra and I are, Dr. Ruth Westheimer was a sex educator, and she was like, I mean, when in the 80s, she was like in her 70s, right?
1: Wasn't she, like, is she still alive? Yeah. She's still alive. Oh, yeah, she's alive. She's well. She's tweeting about the pandemic. Potentially, she was our age when she was doing that. Oh, we always felt like she was so old, but she also has this very thick accent. She's like, and just in a deep wisdom, right? A deep wisdom, like you couldn't. She's a petite woman, but you couldn't knock her over. You try, so she's just she's rock solid. So yes, I'm sure to our teen ears, she sounded like just a wise, wise, wise soul, but she yeah. was and is.
0: And she was the only person that I had ever heard talking about sex, just like not like just like clinically as it was, right? She's like, you know, you, you, you know, touch your clitoris, like whatever she would touch. She just like talk about it on the radio. Right? It was awesome. But for us, we're hiding under the covers and we're listening to this, right? I don't, We had some like public access channels. We had like Robin Bird and things like that, right? That was porn, essentially soft porn. But other than that, like no one was talking to us about this. So, Mm-mm. right? Will you talk, talk a little bit about how we receive sex education and how we would how, how we should like, how we
1: are changing and shifting the education that girls are getting and what we should see. Right. Well, I mean, the, the sort of punchline here is things haven't gotten better. <laughs> in fact, in some ways you could argue they've gotten worse. So yes. we are put, you know, Gen X, we are part of a blip that was, we were educated around sex during the AIDS crisis, right? So we were the first generation to get the very, very front loaded, like have sex and you could die messaging. Right. That was fun. That was, yeah, that was, that was good, good times. And again, and just very—I mean—I think that probably on the spectrum of things, my sex—I was pretty decent in that I wasn't given—I was given certainly the 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 sex is dangerous message, but I wasn't given anything about the sex is sinful message. And I was so disturbed to hear—we—I had a lot of conversations with a lot of younger, you know, millennials, and then current college students about their sex education experiences, and was pretty consistently horrified around direct teaching that to have sex outside of marriage, to have multiple sexual partners makes you unlovable is one message, right? Dirty, unlovable, nobody will want you. But then there's a more subtle message that is sometimes given around, if you have multiple sexual partners, you lose your ability to attach to people. You can't lo- you can't love and be loved anymore, which is another just sort of twist on the fear-based theme. And that's continued. In fact, we, under the Obama administration, money started to be shifted away from this absence-only sex education, which the research shows up, down, and sideways, absence-only sex education does not delay onset of sexual activity. What it does do is spike the chances that you will have an unintended pregnancy, contract an STI, because of course you don't know how to prepare yourself, and you create a split. It's sort of like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, and then when you do, you're not ready for it because you haven't done the steps. Right. Okay, so that's not working. We were talking to kids about how to negotiate. Here's what I'm ready for. Here's what I'm not ready for. Teach them how to prevent STIs. The data was trending. It was going down. We were starting to make some progress. And then, of course, under the Trump administration, that money is now getting filtered back towards abstinence-only sex education. So it's become something, this thing that is about basically, you know, sex is an aspect of being a human. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's become ideological. It's become politicized. And so we still are not at a place where they're in the public system there's any sort of unitary agreed upon way of doing this. So cool to see how the private sector is stepping in. It's cool to see the parents are taking this under their own wing and doing it themselves because public sector can't get them their act together, but it's unfortunate. And if you Google, you know, what's a blowjob, you're going to get taken to Pornhub. No, there's nothing, I don't think we have to be anti-porn to be, to say that our kids deserve better than Yes. Porn being their sex education teacher. Absolutely. And I have I have a um an undergraduate at Northwestern who's just finishing up her honors thesis and she talked to a bunch of queer college students about their experiences with both sex education and porn and it was fascinating. So we are for as bad as it is for straight kids around sex ed, it's it's even more horrifying for queer kids, right? Sex ed is not by and large inclusive. And right. so So porn is for sure filling in, you know, those absences. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so that's, that's where we are. It's not great. And people of all genders deserve to grow up with a message that your sexual self is a part of you and that you deserve pleasure and that love, that adolescents can fall in love and feel love and have experiences of dating, I think that we do so much to minimize adolescent love and adolescent relationships. We tell them mm-hmm. that it's, that's not real love and...
0: Puppy you know. love, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it does them many, does them many favors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about sort of how the patriarchy has here's the, th- right, the patriarchy is bad for both men and women, <laughs> right? Like, it's not like it's, I mean, ultimately, like in the long term, it's not good for either one of us. So when we talk about, certainly for me, when I talk about smashing the patriarchy, this is not an anti-male thing, which I'm very cautious to have to state. Unfortunately, I have to state it, right? But the patriarchy has uh, impacted, I think, women's sexual ownership and sexual power, and and we've done that. I mean, it's done that in in about seven thousand different ways, right? Like through body shame, through you know, seventy two billion dollar diet industry telling us that we should need that our bodies are not okay, in all sorts of of ways. How do you see it as affecting and impacting us in this way, sexual?
1: Yeah, I I hear you. I I I talk about patriarchy in the very same way that it hurts all of us, and and it really is. It's a way. Of enlisting male allies um, to be really thoughtful about who do they not get to be because they get stuck inside of this man box, right? And what what are the burdens that they carry and the limitations on their ability to love and be loved because of all of this messaging. So I do, I think it's very real that it that it hurts all of us and that there are very subtle ways that we all reinforce it, right? So one like piece of data that I always refer to is that we start touching our, our boys by the time a little boy is three years old, we are all touching him less. And that's Mm -hmm. mothers and fathers are touching. We touch our little boys less. We touch our little girls. So there's ways in which that women become the foot soldiers of the patriarchy, right? And we grow up feeling like we have to make sure that our boys are going to not be marginalized, humiliated, shamed, left out. And then of course the Women that those boys grow up to love end up paying the, paying the price, right? What, what, what it takes to be a good partner is pretty antithetical to how our culture defines being a good man. Hmm. Because to be a good partner, you have to be able to collaborate, own your vulnerability, admit when you're wrong, cry, you know, <laughs> lean into your feelings. And so that's I spend much of my week, you know, working. Most of my couples are straight couples, so I spend much of my week with these marriages that are deeply, deeply in trouble. And uh, and I'm doing very basic empathy training with husbands. Right, we're we're like breaking down empathy into its component parts, and we're working on how to respond to your wife's needs, requests, yearnings, um, without having the the need be somehow evidence that you. Are not enough you know or that you are wrong?
0: yes, absolutely right exactly. And how receptive do you find that men go to couples therapy with their wives because they have quote have to and then like how receptive do you find oh generally speaking, obviously this is a general question but how do you how receptive do you find them to that work because that's challenging to men who have been you know programmed by the patriarchy in this way
1: Well, I, I unfortunately, Oftentimes they are there because so usually, so my, my typical situation is that he is the one calling for therapy, but it usually is because she is got one foot out the door. Yep. Still, unfortunately that is, I think sometimes if I have a younger, if I have a couple that's younger, a couple more in their thirties, oftentimes they will come in as a very mutual decision, but, men in their 40s, 50s, 60s, it is oftentimes either post somebody's infidelity, usually his infidelity, yep. or, she's, or she's just on her very, very last, very last legs. And, there's, and I think that men come in with fear of being told that they're wrong. I think that that's, that's what men's fear of couples therapy oftentimes is, is that it's going to be, they're going to get, it's going to be two against one
0: yes and so i have a lot of women who are in that space who have been like asking and asking and asking and asking for therapy for years and now they're done and their husbands are like wait 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 wait, i'll go to therapy and they're like okay fine fine find someone you find because i have been doing i've been doing the legwork for you know 10 12 years if you want to go find someone so it doesn't surprise me that you see a lot of the men um making call right and God, I just, yeah, that's the part that just breaks my heart, right? It it breaks my heart because so many of these men really don't want to lose their wives, right? They really don't. That's right. And we as a society and as a culture have not set them up to be in healthy relationship, right? And it's just, it's so,
1: so tragic. It's why I love that my week has these two parts. Like one is sitting with, you know, my, my couples tend to skew older, and then I get to sit with um, college students, right, and do this big, I do a big, elaborate, in-depth relationship education course with college students. And I tell you what, there are tons of men in that class, and they want to get it. There is a particular kind of pain that men who are doing this work have to confront, which the loss of who you thought what you thought it was to be a good man, the loss of looking at ways in which your father didn't measure up or gran- grandfather and how to hold on to all of that. But that is it is really it is breaking those patterns and those cycles. That's really it's courageous and it's beautiful and it's yeah. sad. Oh, I,
0: I think it's amazing. The course that you're talking about is your marriage one oh one, right? And I and I think right, is that right? Yeah. And I just think it's amazing and i want that i want that to be like curric that should be curriculum in in like every college across the country and and in high school right like we should be teaching how to be in relationship with each other from the get go so i just i love that you're doing that it it just it like makes my heart like flutter <laughs> like we all wish we had that right we all wish we had that that class for god's sake Twenty years worth of research and work, you know, for both of us, right? Collected forty years of research and and work. Wish we could have gotten at an early age. One of the things that I hear a lot in my work is about various levels of sexual coercion. Like, and I, I think I think that there's a spectrum of coercion. There's subtle, like, but if you love me, you would you would do it, right? There's what you talk about um, in your book about desire discrepancy, which can have some manipulation in there, right? And then all the way up to marital rape, which I've done a lot of educating on women about the fact that what they're experiencing is actually marital rape, right? Because many of them, first of all, in many, you know, many cultures, a man is entitled to a woman's body at any time. So, that's not rape. <laughs> I'm his wife, right? Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about sort of the spectrum of coercion.
1: Well, it is, it is the the whole paradigm and it's predicated upon this, the fact that we have never, we have not yet figured out how to help girls and women feel entitled to pleasure because the very moment that we reframe sex and we take it out, the the duty-bound framework of sex, that that sex is a a service and that to be a good woman is to be sexually chaste and sexually modest. Like That whole framework sets up that spectrum of coercion versus if we told girls from a very early age, you know what? There's a part of your body that feels real, real different to touch. And you are going to want to get under the covers and listen to Dr. Ruth. And that's not because you're a pervert. It's because you're a human and you have as much curiosity about sex as a boy does. We do we do a really big disservice when we kind of perpetuate these myths of sex is the only thing that boys want and you have to be really careful that boys are only after one thing. Like that message right there is predicated upon the idea that she wouldn't maybe just want one thing. Like maybe she just kind of wants to, you know, hook up with a boy and not think real hard about the consequences. But we don't we don't make space for that. So then girls grow up splitting splitting off their own sexual curiosity, their own sexual appetites which is then we get a lot of messages around suppressing our appetites of all kinds. So that becomes, that's, that feels really natural. Like, oh yeah, well I'm not supposed to feel hungry. I'm not supposed to feel horny. I'm just supposed to be in control of everything about me all the time. And so that, that starts to all kind of fit together and create the conditions whereby like women don't, women don't feel authorized to go into a sexual experience on equal footing and men don't go into a sexual experience thinking that women need to be on equal footing right because even how we teach consent when when we teach consent we often teach no means no right which is so bare bones minimum versus another model which would be like great sex is like a jazz improvisation right like you're you're both playing off each other you have different instruments you have the same instrument but you're basically kind of riffing and flowing and what makes it good is that you're kind of in sync and vibing together which is just a very very different it's a different way in everybody gets to go into a sexual experience on the same footing with the same amount of power and voice and agency but we can't get there until we start to bust up some of these myths and the and the myth that male sexuality is inherently predatory right we that's the other myth is that male sexuality is inherently dangerous and therefore everybody has to just be on lookout and that's really all we right. can do is contain it. Like that's those, those stupid dress code rules, right? Where a tank top strap has to be this thick. Basically is saying like, listen you guys, these boys are dangerous versus teaching boys that of course you're gonna notice lots and lots of things and here's how you ground strong sexual energy in your body, here's how you breathe with it, here's how you contain it, here's a very different world. We're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsor,
0: Today's episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service. They counsel more people worldwide than any other online service available. And I love BetterHelp. They will assess your needs and they'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. The service is available to clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, and you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. I'll tell you that I I know that I work with a lot of women who are not able to find a counselor in their area, right? Maybe they live in rural areas or it, otherwise it's difficult for them to find a counselor and BetterHelp is probably your best bet out there. We have a special offer for the Divorce Survival Guide podcast listeners to get 10% off your first month. So go to betterhelp.com slash divorce survival guide. Now that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P, and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash divorce survival guide. So we were talking about being on the same footing, right? And being on the, the same level of agency and power and all of that, Right. And the thing that comes to my mind when we talk about that is, is trauma and how, like certainly as a woman of my age, right, the amount of sexual trauma that I've already experienced in my life, it feels to me, um, and I could be wrong, but it feels to me like any sexual relationship I enter into, I'm not going into on an equal footing, right? And you, you talk about that sort of triangle of risk I can't remember all, the other, all the, other two, <laughs> the other two things are in that, right? But it feels to me like my risk is higher. As a woman who has suffered sexual trauma, sexual coercion, who has been raped, who has, was molested as a small child, Like I mean, the list goes on, right? And I, I, I sort of downplay that because it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a 49-year-old woman who grew up in the 70s and 80s and like, of course, <laughs> right? And, I'm, and that's, that's a fucking horrible, sad state of affairs but most women listening to this will have had some form of sexual trauma. And so it doesn't feel like I'm right. My level of risk feels a lot higher and by the very nature of being a woman in which I'm taking a man inside
1: of me physically. Mm -hmm. So how does that square? Well, it just, as you say it, it just, it speaks to the urgency of male allyship. Yes. Right. It speaks to, because I think so often she feels like her job is to keep herself from dissociating, and um, and just try to show up for the experience. Like the, she, it's, she's at risk of making it a one-person job. Managing my sexual trauma and how it's going to get activated when I make love to this partner is my job to take care of. She makes a we project into a me project. Mm-hmm. So it's so I want men to be able to hold space to be an intimate ally. I mean, I like I get chills saying it out loud because I tell you what, like the times that I have the privilege of working with a couple where one person is healing from trauma and the other person is like, help me help you. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to understand it. I want to be with you in it. I want to, I don't want to trigger you. It's beautiful work because that whole, that right there is a kind of healing, right? It's sexual healing just to say Talk to me about what you went through and where you need me to be vis-a-vis all of that so that we can start to do this differently for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, gorgeous. That is I mean, that is so beautiful, right? And I think it's what so many women crave, right? We so crave that. And there's a vulnerability, which is another point in that your triangle, isn't it? <laughs> um, there's, okay, it's, it's risk, trust,
1: and self-compassion.
0: Ah, right. And so there's the trust, right? I always talk about trust requiring vulnerability, right? Like we have to, right? And so does, so is risk. Risk is vulnerability, right? And so there's this vulnerability to peace that we, that, but if you don't have that trust, if you don't have the trust piece, you cannot bring a level of risk into it, right? You just simply can't. That's right. And I think that, From my experience, my personal sort of sexual history experience, right, is that we, so often we, women enter into sexual relationships before there's trust in order to build trust, but, or build intimacy, but what we're, but we're actually creating the opposite, right? We're actually not. And to, I recently had this, have had, had this experience with someone where we've built eight, nine months of like deep intimacy with no sexual with no sex, partly because he's been healing from his divorce and his, you know, and he, he hasn't been ready. He's like, and so it's been great, but the, but the level of intimacy that we've created, the trust is the most profound thing I've ever experienced. You know, and this is a person that I'm not in an official relationship with, who's not, you know, my partner. He doesn't even live in the country right now. Like there's all sorts of things about it, but the level of trust and intimacy that we've created is by far greater
1: than any actual intimate relationship I've ever been in, you know? Well, it's so beautiful. And you couldn't have done that without him. He has his own way of languaging for him. He's done some work on his interior. I think so often boys and men grow up using sex to regulate their own sense of worth. Yes. So when he's, so when he's wanting sex, when he's wanting to front load sex to build trust, really what he's trying to do is say, that's how I'm going to know that she likes me. If we have sex, that's how I'm going to really know that she likes me. Right. It's a way of regulating the internal angst that men feel. It's, it's a, it becomes like the bar for knowing that I'm doing an okay enough job. I'm desirable enough. And so then men end up abandoning themselves. And this is a man who, has, who actually has done work to understand that his penis and his heart are profoundly connected to each other. Yeah. And that he wants to, he wants as much to feel safe with you as you want to feel safe with him. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Because you couldn't have gotten there with him unless he had done that work on his own. You couldn't.
0: Absolutely. And there were a number of times where I was like, can we please have sex? And he was like, no. <laughs> he was like, no. And I was like,
1: Arr! that's a wise man. That's right. Very yeah. erotically charged with like that. No, uh, uh-uh, I'm not there. That, that will get, yeah, that's good. Very good. And it's strategic it's, and psychologically minded on his part.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really wonderful, but it, but, it, and it's also been, it's been a very, it's been a healing relationship for me for a million reasons, but, you know, it's shown me too how many times I've entered into a sexual relationship with someone. I am the classic codependent woman, or have been, who has used sex to get love, who pretended sex equals love. And it has gotten me everything but <laughs> you know like everything but
1: yep. yeah yeah and it is and i think you're you're speaking to uh, the way that you're talking about it is that as that is part of your narrative you are at risk of doing that because part of part of surviving trauma part of how one survives trauma is being able to exit the experience right so that sort of abandonment distance self abandonment taking yourself out is how one survives trauma it's a it's an incredibly important coping strategy in the to survive yeah and it's so much the nature of being a woman is sort of like not checking in with ourselves anyway so it's like the trauma and the gender socialization play off each other and then this whole expectation that we need to give sex to get love is a third it's like it's like a it's like a three part unholy trinity of self-abandonment. And, and so you can see how this pattern just continues to play on itself. And it's so scary. It's scary to step out of it. It's scary to, to say, actually, here's my boundary. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, it's not a punitive boundary. It's not a manipulative boundary. It is me speaking my truth.
0: Yeah. And the most important thing in that is, is sort of not the most important thing, but something also very important in that is how that's received, Mm -hmm. right? because. If it is received well, right, it, the 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 trust just like it's like right there, right. If someone says you talk, you you tell this great story in your um, TED talk of one of your students who was with a, with a man, and what was it? He said like he was asking for consent, right? And she said, well, you tell it because it's so it's so sweet."
1: <laughs> in some ways, it's a little bit like what what you're going through with with this man that you're dating, where he's like. He's like, no. And you're like, oh, really? So he, but he, this man, so this is like right, two college students hooking up. And the guy says to the, my student, the young woman, the guy says, can I take off your shirt? And she like shrugs her shoulders. That's what she always does because that's how she goes through sexes. It's just sort of like, she just kind of, she's just the brake pedal. And if she doesn't need to put on the brakes then the guy can keep going and he starts kissing her and he's like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not taking off your shirt until you tell me that you want me to take off your shirt. Right. So he like flips the script. He's like, I'm not going to settle for this. I'm going to keep going until you say, stop. Like, that's not what I want. I want you to figure out what the hell you want from me. Like, what do you want us to do together? And it was, she wasn't doing the shoulder shrug because she was trying to be whatever coy, cool. manipulative. Right. Yeah, It was just the only option she thought she had. Right. Oh,
0: it's so amazing. It's just so, I always say like consent is so hot. Really, like when someone is genuinely asking what you want and if you want, and can I, and do you, and do you want, right? Not just can I, but do you want, it's like, oh my God, it's such a turn
1: on, <laughs> Because what, because what, what that man is saying to you is like, I am, I'm, my power is grounded. Like I know exactly where my power center is and it's grounded. It's available, but it's not intrusive. Like this is, I'm offering you something, but I need you to ground yourself and figure out what, what you want. It's very, it's very powerful, right? We, it's not power over, it's not dominant power, Mm -hmm. but it's for a man to be able to kind of hold onto his own center. Like. He's not asking, like, am I doing a good job, which is kind of, that's kind of not so hot because it's sort of. Oh, yeah, right. No. (laughs) Affirm affirm me. But it's sort of like, listen, I got some good stuff to offer you, but I need to know if you're on board and I need to know that it's good. And is it good for you? And that's very, yes, Very hot.
0: Very hot. I want to go back to the sexual coercion, to the, like the others, the other side of it, sort of, like I said, like marital rape is a very, is is somewhat extreme, right? And I think that, you know, just to state clearly, it's not okay. It Marital rape is rape. There's no such thing, as far as I'm concerned, there's no such thing as marital rape. It's rape. And arguably made worse by the fact that it's someone that you're married to and should have a trusting relationship with. But what about, what about um, desire discrepancy and how, how couples navigate that and, you know, the good ways they navigate it. And then the really not good (laughs) ways that they navigate it. Cause that's where some coercion,
1: some like fucked up coercion comes in. That's right. Absolutely. So desire discrepancy is completely unavoidable in a long-term sexually monogamous relationship, right? The chances of two people wanting the same kind of sex at the same frequency is just, it's not realistic at all. And it tends to be the case that couples fall into a pattern of one person being the higher desire partner and one person being the lower desire partner. And the problems come especially, it's it's an especially problematic situation around coercion when it's a straight couple and when he is the higher desire partner and she's the lower desire partner. So part of what I'm trying to do in this book is help women feel empowered enough that they can feel able to articulate what they would be up for, what they wouldn't be up for, and because that's a piece of it, right, is, is if, she, if she gets like locked into this whole, it's my duty, it's my responsibility, I should give him what he wants, it, that just kind of keeps the cycle going. Mm-hmm. And, if she, and if sex doesn't feel good, right, if she's having sex, it doesn't feel good because she doesn't, she hasn't explored her body. She doesn't know, she's sort of bought into this idea that penetration equals sex, which we've all, by the way, bought into which is, I think that makes the problem worse, right? So we say that sex is penetration, right? That's sort of, right. if you say the word sex, that's what pump someone what comes to mind is penis and vagina sex. Right, right. It tends to not be the thing that feels the best for women. So oftentimes she's set up from the get-go to not enjoy sex that much because it's sort of like he may touch her for a little bit before he gets to stick his penis in. Well, who the hell wants that? So not then- Right. But if he, but if he hasn't learned, if nobody has really taught him, listen, dude, like that's your, your whole body is, is a pleasure center for you, right? Like when she touches you in all these places, actually, it feels really good for you. And your body is more expansive than just your penis. And by the way, her body is more expansive than just her vaginal opening. And there are parts of the, the, like sort of the, the, pleasures of the journey versus like we do some stuff to get to the goal of penetration. Mm-hmm. So I think all of I think we we are set up for desire discrepancy because we have these very narrow definitions of sex. And I think couples resolve it in healthy ways in all kinds of ways. I think one option is that she may say, I'm not really available for penetration tonight, but I would be more than happy to give you a quick blowjob. <laughs> or I'm not available for anything, but I would love to hold you and, and, and talk to you and be with you and be near you. And I love you and you're sexy and not wanting you tonight is, is, says everything about my stress level and nothing about your attractiveness. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. so we, we can soften the blow <laughs> by, <laughs> you know by giving a bit more context because I think what often happens is he feels rejected. Right. And she feels guilty. hmm That's, and that's where the, that's where the problems start. Right. So w- the, I think, and, and the problem can begin with how do
0: men handle rejection? How has our society, uh, or the patriarchy, everything back to what we were talking about before, how does it teach men to handle rejection? It teaches them to reject, right? I never wanted you anyway, <laughs> or, right? Be, or push harder.
1: No, don't take no for an answer. hmm Right, right that's where the manipulation comes in is that if he if he doesn't if he can't tolerate rejection and he's going to meet her rejection with either pouting mm-hmm. or you know trying to build a case which also isn't very sexy or guilt tripping then sometimes she will just do it because she doesn't want to go she's trying to bypass that whole that whole cycle so you're yeah. right a lot of it is helping helping men have have tools for tolerating reframing rejection because it isn't it is saying i'm not i'm not available for that activity tonight it's not a rejection of you as a person it doesn't have to mean that i think so often there's that false equivalence of if she doesn't want sex it means she rejects me as a person or i'm not getting something i feel entitled to right
0: right so and the pro- and a lot of the problem too with women right is that then we say yes when we don't want to right we're like okay i'll just appease him tonight right that Keeps us further and further and further away from understanding and owning our own sexuality, right? If we're only having sex because he wants to, because it's my duty, because I just want to keep the peace, because whatever, then we're not exploring, we're not open to exploring our own sexuality because sex is just something we do to keep the peace.
1: Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And the distance grows. And there's a way in which then we are what we're, we're training our body. We're like conditioning our body then to relate to that body as icky, right? Like if I'm, if I'm having sex with you, but I don't want to be having sex with you, what I'm pairing together are your body, your scent, your touch, your breath. I'm pairing that with ick, resentment. So, so we actually in, in an attempt to solve the moment, we create the conditions for a deeper problem, which is now my body is becoming increasingly hardwired to be disturbed, disgusted, angry by your presence. And that right there is a massive intimacy killer. That is. Is there coming back from that? I think one thing is flipping the polarity. Like I think one way that couples can do this is, that, is the higher desire partner just says, I'm done, I am neutral. You come get me when you want some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we will, we are on your timeline. We are taking your lead. We do what you want, when you want, how you want. And that's it. It, it can be incredibly healing. So if, if, if the high
0: desire partner says like, okay, I'm now like, basically that you have control, you have, that can, you said that can be really healing for Yes.
1: The same words can be said with love or with control. So we're assuming this is, a, this is a person who's saying, you know, saying it with love, like saying, okay, legitimately, I don't like this any more than you do. It doesn't feel good to have like sort of charity sexual experiences with you because you feel badly. Like, I don't like this any more than you do. So... As an attempted solution, I'm going to just drop the reins and let you pick them up and you show me where, when, how. If it's said in a loving way, basically it's an invitation then for, for him, we're going to we're saying him in this example, him to just kind of hold space. And then the, the two of them as a couple can kind of learn about her desire you know so it becomes it becomes a bit more like an experiment like we're anthropologists together like we're working together to figure out what what does your sexual self say what is it wanting what is it craving what's the pace what's the energy of it and and that can be what she needs to step into desire if her desire has only ever been in response to what she thinks somebody else wants or what somebody else does want, then she hasn't, neither of them has really learned to listen to what does her desire want.
0: So let's, so what about um, the couples for whom the, there's not this loving, right? It's, it's maybe not so loving, right? When you have somebody who is manipulative and sort of, you know, has a higher desire level, But are but are using manipulative tools to try and secure that? How do how do you recommend couples talk about this? Women, if if let's say, I mean, just because I I work with women, so I'm hearing these stories from women, right? So, you know, and I'm sure it goes both ways. But how do how do we talk about this safely when it doesn't
1: feel that safe? Right, right. You know, it's it's such a dicey conversation, isn't it? Because I hate the idea of us telling women they need to, they need to do more on their side of the street in order to make this problem different because right. because it really is I mean every sexual problem is a couple problem so this is a couple problem and I don't know I, when somebody's using if if our if our man in the situation is using manipulative techniques it is either he's got an investment in control or he has a very very small toolbox right he just doesn't have it's a default he doesn't have other ways of doing it he's unskilled yep under the, that scenario, that can be fixed, right? He can, he can get some more tools. It's gotta be through couples therapy or through men's work or through his own individual therapy. He can get those, he can understand what are the traumas or hurts or wounds in his life that led him to equate sex with validation? What are the stories? What are the ways in which privilege has blinded him from the, his entitlement and the behaviors that he does when he feels entitled to something. He can do that work. She can't make him do that work. And unfortunately, the more she says, this isn't okay under the scenario, the more he's going to say, yes, it is. And I wouldn't have to do this if you would just. Right. So that cycle has to get broken and she can't do it. She can make a choice to not participate in the cycle anymore, right? She can just say it is that is not actually seductive. You, your guilt tripping is not. Nothing happening. in my down there? It's not a turn on. <laughs> right. 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 Feedback. You know.
0: Because, right. Exactly. And and I think that's important. Right. I think that in and of itself, from an agency perspective, that a woman could could have the the agency and the confidence to say to her husband, "What you're saying to me right now is actually not turning me on." So if you're if you want to ha- engage in a sexual relationship with me, like that's not doing it. And in a in a controlled dynamic like this one that we're talking about, that in an, that in itself would be radical for her to say. Sure, sure, right? For herself to have that much agency to say that to a, to a partner,
1: right? Yes, right. If if historically what she's done is she's believed the story that a good wife would, and a good partner should, Mm -hmm. then yes, she's stepping out of that. She's stepping out of that story that somehow he's right, and I do have to give him this. And she's saying, you know what? Actually, no. Actually, that's not very hot. That's not. I don't know what you think you're doing, but you're not. You're not enticing me right now. Yeah, you're not Turn turning it. me on. If you, if you want to talk about how to entice me, I may have some thoughts about that. I may actually need a little bit of time to masturbate on my own and do some discovery, read Alexandra's book <laughs> and get back to you because maybe I maybe I don't even know, right? Maybe I don't even know what, what turns me on, what I need from you in order to tap into my erotic self. I may need some time. But that's a different conversation than you coming at me and saying, a good wife should and why aren't you and what's wrong with you. But that conversation I'm actually not going to engage in anymore with you.
0: Yeah. I love it. This is so, so wonderful. So Alexandra, your book, Taking Sexy Back, is, I think, I think it's, it's, it's must, must read. (laughs) It's a must read. It's (laughs) required reading, I think for all women, right? Because I love that you, you look at sex through a cultural lens, through a relational lens, all of these different, there, there's a bunch of different lenses, right? Which are the, what are the lenses? There's <laughs> emotional, physical, relational, spiritual, mental, developmental, and cultural, right? And you start with cultural, which is one of my favorite topics of conversations, what I, I start my programs with too, right? And I think, I think it's required reading. How to own your sexuality and create the relationships you want. Who doesn't want that?
1: Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, in talking about men and male allies, there's a chapter in the book for men, for men who love and men who make love to women who are taking sexy back. And it, and it is, it's about everything we've been talking about today. It's a, it's a letter. It's an open letter that I write to the male reader of saying like, listen, if the woman in your life has just read this book, there's some stuff that I want you to know as she steps forward. Here's what I really want Here's what she's really going to need from you as she breaks up these old scripts, these old stories, as she tries some new things out about her relationship with pleasure, she's going to need you to hold some space for her. She's going to need you to not get defensive. She, you know, There's stuff that she carries that isn't your fault. It's bigger and older than you, but you are powerful in terms of your ability to hold space for her while she figures it out.
0: It's so great. That's so great. I love that you included that chapter. I think it's so important. So important, so beautiful. So where can everyone find you on all the interwebs?
1: All of the webs, several places. So the, my website is dralexandrasolomon.com and I'm active on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, my newsletter is a good way to keep in touch with up, upcoming events, all of which are now online, which is kind of lovely in some ways. There's just so much, such wider access now but the newsletter goes out just only once a month and keeps people in the loop
0: i need to get on that (laughs) note to self (laughs) that's so great alexandra thank you so much i and i strongly strongly recommend that everyone gets alexandra's book which will be linked in the show notes obviously taking sexy back available everywhere where you can where you buy your books thank you so much alexandra thanks for tuning in to another episode of the divorce survival guide podcast